Hi everyone, I'm Patrick Johnson. And I'm Chante Westmoreland. And this is Do You Even Have a Tech Degree? This week on Do You Even Have a Tech Degree, Chante sits down with Jamie Williams, a staff attorney with the Electronic Frontiers Foundation, a nonprofit committed to defending civil liberties in a digital world. In their conversation, Jamie and Shantae talk about the work that EFF does and the murky state that the law is in right now. Without further ado, here is Shantae and Jamie. Hi, Professor Williams. Um, If you could, uh, well, first, thank you for agreeing to do this. Yeah, no problem. If you could start off by just telling us about yourself and your background and maybe where you went to law school. Sure. Um, I am a staff attorney at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is a digital rights nonprofit based in San Francisco. Um, And I'm on the civil liberties team there. We have um, lawyers, activists, technologists, um, an international team. And we, we, um, my boss likes to say we're the ACLU of the internet. Um, So we just make sure people's rights go with them online. And we have Our lawyers do both civil liberties work and IP work, and I'm on the civil liberties team. So I focus on the fourth and first implicate first the fourth and first amendment implications of new technologies, um, as well as a bunch of other issues. And then yeah, I went to Berkeley and I graduated in 2011. Um, Or Bolt, I guess. Yeah. Berkeley Law. When did it do the change? Did it do the change while you were here? I think it was during while we were here because we have, I have actual legitimate Bolt merchandise. Okay. Um, But then I also have some Berkeley Law stuff. So I think that it was while we were here. But I don't know because I just, I don't feel like I stopped calling it Bolt. Yeah. I feel um, like even like everywhere, I think people still call it Bolt, even though yeah. the branding is now. Yeah, Berkeley it's both names. We have two names now. Exactly. Good, right? <laughs> All right. So in the uh, Fundamentals of Internet Law course that I took with both you and uh, Professor Lila Bailey, we spoke about the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And so when you and I spoke about doing this talk, um, we kind of decided that that was going to be the focus of it. Could you explain a little bit about what that is? The Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, or the CFAA, is the federal anti-hacking statute. Um, And it was passed in 1986, Mm -hmm. way back when the internet was in its very early stages. Um, And part of it, part of the law, well, part of what influenced Congress to pass this law was actually um, the 1983 techno-thriller War Games, Mm -hmm. which is... Um, a movie that involves a very young Michael Broderick kind of hacking in and playing with his computer and almost accidentally starting World War III. Mm -hmm. And that was presented on the floor of Congress as a realistic representation of hacking, Um, which is a little crazy. Um, And again, but this was back in the day when I don't think that most of of our representatives in Congress probably didn't even use email. So this was a new and scary, potentially, thing that yeah. a war could be started because... It was. It, I think there was a lot that was not known, but um, so they ended up passing this legislation that's really vague, and it prohibits unauthorized access to a protected computer. Okay. Um, and over the years, the law has been expanded, and so protected computer now means any computer um, connected to the Internet. Wow. Okay. And so... 
an unauthorized access still is completely undefined in the statute, which has been a problem for courts and security researchers. So courts don't understand, are not in agreement over um, what the term means. And we can go into that in a little bit more. And then also security researchers who need to be able to do the research to keep our computers and devices safe um, aren't able to do the research they want. Or sometimes they do and they're scared to release it um, or to tell companies about it because they're scared of getting a, a pretty serious violations. This is a criminal and a civil statute and it has severe criminal penalties. Um, and one of the reasons EFF got involved with this, this Computer Fraud and Abuse Act work um, was in asking for some reform. So Aaron Schwartz was a, a internet activist and a good friend of EFF's, and he um, had broken to the um, um, computer lab at MIT and a, a closet, a server closet, and was, was downloading a bunch of academic articles. Mm -hmm. And he got hit with a CFA lawsuit and was facing 35 years in wow. prison and ended up um, taking his own life. And that was really sad. Um, and I think we had had problems with the CFA before, but that prompted people in Congress to propose Aaron's Law, which was um, CFA reform to help to help clarify that terms of service violations don't constitute CF, uh, CFA violation, right. that that's not the type of thing that Aaron did wasn't the type of behavior that Congress was trying to target. Um, it was trying to target these malicious actors breaking into computers to steal information mm -hmm. or harm the computer systems. Um, so yeah. Wow, that was uh, an impactful story. Um, so let's see, you mentioned that the act itself is pretty vague, which usually means that it's pretty broad. Is that correct? Yeah. Why do you think Congress made the act so broad if they didn't intend it to cover um, so many different types of actions that may implicate the internet or a computer? I think that part of the reason that they used vague and undefined languages because they weren't quite sure what they were trying to fix mm -hmm. back in 1986. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of times, and you, we continue to see this to this day, especially um, as some senators and representatives last year um, are, were supporting CFA reform that took things in the wrong direction mm -hmm. with equally vague language. And I think that it's because the legislation in 1986 was crafted out of fear mm -hmm. instead of knowledge about what the actual threats were and what we were trying to protect against. Now that we understand a bit more about how people use computers, mm -hmm. it's time to reform and make sure that it's clear that certain things are exempt from CFA liability. So one of the big debates, and there's a circuit split right now, is whether terms of service violations constitute a CFAA violation. And mm -hmm. so these are computer use restrictions. So Facebook says when you sign up or when you go check their, out their terms of service, mm -hmm. if you've read them, you're not allowed to make up a fake profile, put fake information in there, or you're not supposed to share your password mm -hmm. with anybody else. And if you do that, it's a violation of their terms of service. And some circuits have found that of violating a terms of service, a use restriction, can give rise to CFA liability, which turns people into criminals for all sorts of things. Um, 
The Ninth Circuit actually, along with the Second and the Fourth Circuit, have rejected that theory because they found that that would render the statute unconstitutionally vague. So they've actually limited the statute and said, no, it can't cover this broad of conduct because that would be basically absurd and it would turn people into, um, there's some great language from Kaczynski in the Ninth Circuit Mm -hmm. on Bonk decision um, about how if you say you're tall, dark, and handsome on your Facebook profile when you're in fact not, that that would be a criminal violation, which is... Again, not, that's not, we know that that's not what Congress wanted to target. Um, and I think there's some arguments that we need to have the law be so vague, arguments on the other side, in order to capture all of the bad guys. But, um, but that's not true. So I have a quote here uh, from Professor Oren Kerr at George Washington University. Um, the quote says, Courts have struggled to interpret authorization because they lack an underlying theory of how to distinguish authorized from unauthorized access. Can you maybe explain that quote and contextualize that for us within the uh, CFAA? So is this from Oren Kerr's Norms of Computer Trespass? So I think he's honing in on this this problem because, I mean, this is a computer trespass statute, and in the real world, we have, well, A, we have, there's something different between civil trespass and criminal trespass, and here we have one statute with severe penalties. Um, But in the real world context, you have all of these norms that have governed our life since since before the U.S. even existed in common law about when it's okay to go onto someone else's property, and those influence courts' decisions. When we're talking about the Internet, judges always want to go and tie um, what's happening on the Internet and make analogies to what's happening in the real world to help understand the technology, Um, which does make sense. I understand the the desire to want to do that to Mm -hmm. help kind of understand the technology and what's going on but some but those are always going to be imperfect analogies and and so drawing the norms that apply in the real world context that you might be analogizing to are not always going to fit in the computer context so like using someone's password for instance um or getting around an ip address box are pretty innocuous common occurrences um Getting around an IP address block, for instance, you can do that on accident. The key difference, and I think what Orrin is trying to get at, is like in the real world context, if there's a no trespass sign and you step on it, everyone knows what that means. (laughs) But in the internet context, it's not necessarily a bad thing to use someone else's password. It might be if you've stolen it or purchased it um, off the black market. But if you're just using a friend's password or a partner's password or a family member's password, Um, to watch uh, Hulu or Netflix, um, Mm -hmm. even though that might be prohibited under the terms of service. I'm not actually sure that those are in those cases. Um, But if they were. Yeah, but if they were. um, Even though it's a terms of service violation, that's Mm -hmm. not, it doesn't rise to the same level of like, oh, this is a criminal trespass violation that we understand there to be in the real world. Right. and I, yeah, it makes sense that it's a it's a hard question for courts to answer. But I think that there needs to be an understanding that things don't work the exact same way on the internet as they do when you have like an actual physical world right. issue. Right. 
Can you give us your perspective on how you see the CFAA uh, affecting other internet-connected devices in the future? So one of the ways that the CFAA is negative or has a potential to have a huge impact on us um, is in the internet, internet of things. Mm-hmm. So we have device, increasingly we're having everyday devices connected to the internet, watches, personal trackers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my husband just bought this morning a Internet of Things cat feeder, which will be our first Internet of Things device. Um, How does that work? <laughs> I'm not sure. Is He'll say. I think it's just like time? we need something that gives him t- food at a specific I time okay. every day. Okay. Because he's he's I don't know. Um, we're going out of town. We have a long trip over the, the holidays, and we're worried about him. Great. Anyway, so that's going to be our first thing. But of course, I mean, I've been hesitant to buy Internet of Things devices because they there's a lot of security issues with them. So this is, for instance, with the cat feeder, mm-hmm. it's a cat food company or cat food device that I'm not I'm not sure who makes it, but there's this concern that like have they implemented all of the security measures? Mm-hmm. Do I know what data it's being connected? Mm-hmm. It definitely connects to your phone. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can control it kind of like remotely. Right. Um, but what what other access to the phone does it have and what yeah. kind of data is it sending? to whatever servers it's connecting to, right? right. So um, there's the reason the CFAA has the potential to impact that is because with the proliferation of Internet of Things devices, mm-hmm. we need to ensure that researchers have the ability to do the research that is needed to make sure that those devices are safe and not being um taken over. We had mm-hmm. like a, this big botnet attack with Internet of Things. Mm-hmm. Um a little while ago, and that I think is prompting calls for more legislation and like cracking down on cyber, cyber, everything. Right. Can you um, talk a little bit about the botnet. I mean, I feel like I don't want to get into the technical details because right. I'm not. Right. <laughs> um, but I, just the basic facts. I think I mean just basically like a bunch of internet things were taken over by by outside technology, okay. and then. Um, and that's kind of where it's called a botnet. So you're having this like network of Internet of Things devices that were taken over and then used to disrupt Internet access right. okay. across the board. So there was a day, I think, was it in November or October when a bunch of, like you couldn't access a bunch of different websites. Yeah. And it was because of this giant botnet attack okay. um, with all these different devices. Right. And so I think like that's one of the last year um, or earlier this year actually, I guess March 2016, mm-hmm. there was a couple of senators introduced the a Botnet Prevention Act, mm-hmm. um, which was CFAA legislation, but it just added on more vague terminology and mm-hmm. ratcheted up penalties and didn't include a carve-out um, or a sufficient carve-out. I think they tried to, but it wasn't sufficient for security researchers. Okay. And I think we're going to see that again next um, year, which is going to be troubling because I think one of the things we need to do is make sure that there's more room for security research, not less room. And so, yes, there is security research is a, is a, uh, or security of our devices is a concern. Um, but like just taking the word cyber and running around with it, isn't going to save us. We need to actually like make sure we do the research that is needed to protect people. That's the best, like vague, big legislation with high penalties that doesn't target um, 
what we needed to target, um, especially when a lot of the bad things that are happening online already fall under things. Um, so, but yeah, and, it, and it, one of the reasons that the CFAA is so vague is because it's just like tacked onto everything, right. um, or it's tacked onto everything because it's so vague. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of the Reply All did this podcast called The Law That Sticks. And it, um, Sarah Jung, who's a reporter, mm-hmm. had mentioned that the CFA, whenever a prosecutor can't find anything mm-hmm. uh, it involves a computer but there's no nothing else and right. they just slap a CFA violation and that sticks um, right. so, and I thought that was a good way of describing the statute so the concern is more legislation that can be used in that way mm-hmm. and hinders research instead of t- measures that actually help protect the American public from real threats um, so what are these researchers doing that they need this type of uh, sort of like backdoor access um, I think that it's just really unclear. Like, for, for in some cases, um, the ACLU filed a lawsuit. Um, recently, I, th- this year as well, uh, I guess it'll be next year by the time this podcast comes out, but the ACLU filed a lawsuit on behalf of discrimination researchers mm-hmm. who want to be able to do research online and might be violating terms of use viola- um, restrictions of different companies. I think the terms of use violations, I mean, those are CFA violations in at least four circuits Mm -hmm. right now, and those are pretty easy to violate. They can be any types of restriction that is in the company's policy online. Um, I think there's definitely, uh, there was a letter from security researchers a few years ago that discussed how um, researchers are scared to get involved in election, like electronic voting machines research, um, and state like anonymous car, like seeing what kind of data is being leaked through cars. And I think just like accessing a device to make, or a device or a car, Mm -hmm. um, to see what kind of data is being collected, Mm -hmm. to see what's accessible. I mean, some, I I think there's, it's unclear what, people exactly are doing because right. they don't want to come forward with those things, I mean, right? Out so, of fear of yeah. or being... I mean, anytime they try to access a computer system and they might be said to be unauthorized, mm-hmm. they're going to be concerned that what they're doing. And some... Yeah, and okay. some companies have these programs um, where, I mean, there's a lot of researchers who just go and look for bugs online. Mm-hmm. Um, and their research is incredibly important because they right. can turn over the research that they find to companies. Um, I mean, there was a guy who found that driverless cars could be hacked mm-hmm. and just completely turned off while you were driving. Mm-hmm. Um, planes, there's been stuff in the news about planes being able to be hacked. Mm-hmm. And so you want good people to find these before bad people do, right? right. So, um, and and that's really important. Yeah, definitely. Else. I mean, and especially in the Internet of Things context, there was a Wired article mm-hmm. a few years back that said every single Internet of Things device that you could imagine has been hacked this year. It was mm-hmm. like an end-of-the-year overview, and it went into all these different things that had mm-hmm. been broken into from heart rate monitors, mm-hmm. like devices that are inside people's right. bodies, wow. to um, cat feeders. To cat feeders, right. yeah. To toilet seats, yeah. to electronic toothbrushes. Um, so, and if someone discovers that vulnerability, a company could either respond and saying, okay, let's fix that right now, or they can respond by saying, 
we don't like you coming in and messing with our system and pointing out our flaws, mm -hmm. we're going to sue you. A lot of companies are starting, I don't know how many, but um, companies are starting to, and it's a great idea, have a bug bounty program mm -hmm. where you can go and submit um, bugs that you find in the system. Mm -hmm. And they have, and a lot of these are having express warranties on top. It's like, if you submit a bug through the system, we promise we won't sue you under the CFA okay. or the DMCA right. or whatever other laws we might and those are great, um, and those people should do adopt those more. They're right. a really great idea. So it's an incentive for people to go looking for it, while also explaining that they're not going to face the consequence of yeah being charged with the CFA. Exactly. Code. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Because um, I because this research it's a recognition that this research is good and helpful, mm -hmm. and that also that that this is not what these laws should be used to apply to, um, but those bug bounty programs aren't. Not every company has them, so we right. still need. Congress and the courts to recognize that this is not what it covers and limit the law in a way um, that ensures that security researchers can do the work that we need. Mm -hmm. And it's I think this is going to be increasingly common um, in the context of big data algorithms. There's mm -hmm. more and more coming out on that and right. how like, we don't know. This has been used to predict who's going to be arrested, mm -hmm. what their punishments should be, whether mm -hmm. someone should get a mortgage. Um, and these are trained algorithms, and we have no research on the decision-making process that's being applied to the data. Um, and we need researchers to be doing that, and they right. also need to be free, because we have a lot of security researchers. We need these big data researchers, mm -hmm. and they also need to be free from CFAA violations. Right. So. Right. Well, can you tell me or do you know of any uh, state laws that are comparable to the CFAA? There's a lot of state laws that cover similar things to the CFAA. Um, they're not always exactly the same. Mm -hmm. California has its own. Oregon has its own. Mm -hmm. um, Do they tend to be narrower? or They're kind of, I think, I'm not 100% sure on all of them. Okay. They're kind of all over the board. And it also depends on, I think they a lot of them are written around the same time or, or closely thereafter the CFAA. So the language often tracks. I think there's a lot of unauthorized ling un unauthorized access language, mm -hmm. but then the way that they've been interpreted in courts has changed. So California's law, which is California Penal Code Section 502, mm -hmm. has been interpreted to include terms of service violations by the Ninth Circuit mm -hmm. um, in a case called U.S. versus Christensen. So mm -hmm. it's been interpreted broader than the CFAA, and the court honed in on some like kind of subtle language differences to mm -hmm. make that distinction. But then um, similar language in Oregon has been interpreted by the Oregon Supreme Court to um, not cover terms of service violations, and they followed the reasoning of the Ninth Circuit's analysis of the CFAA, saying, okay, this isn't the exact same statute, it's not the exact same language, mm -hmm. but the exact same public um, interest concerns apply about overcriminalization. And so we're not gonna we're gonna go the route of the Ninth Circuit and adopt a narrow interpretation of the law. Right. So that was and that was a good decision, I thought. So you've sort of discussed this uh, throughout the talk, um, but are there any specific reforms that you're hoping come about or that you would like to see? Yeah. So there's a couple of there. Aaron's law was was one of the big refor reforms that's been. Um, it's been introduced over the last couple of years and mm -hmm. hasn't gotten that much traction, but it's it's a pretty 
simple reform, it specifies that terms of service, um, terms of service violations could not constitute a CFAA violation, mm -hmm. which it's pretty clear that that should be the case if you're looking. I mean, the Ninth Circuit, the Fourth Circuit, and the Second Circuit are the most recent circuit courts to address the issue, and they all went that way. Mm -hmm. So it seems to be a growing trend that privately imposed use restrictions that are completely controlled by private entities shouldn't be the basis for what is a criminal law right. because of the notice mm -hmm. and overbreath issues that surround that. And then ratcheting down the penalties, the CFA has very severe penalties, mm -hmm. um, and they don't align with what people think the penalty should be. Mm -hmm. So there was a study that was conducted um, of what the proper penalty should be for unauthorized use of the computer. And they asked a bunch of people what they thought, um, if they thought checking the weather at work was gonna, would, should be unauthorized access of a computer system when the workplace had specifically said you're not allowed to use this for personal purposes. Mm -hmm. And I think about 60% of the people said, yes, this is a violation, but it shouldn't be punished at all. Uh -huh. And then, Another 30% said it should be punished by something like a traffic ticket, um, which actually, yeah, 32% said it should be punished with the equivalent of a parking ticket. Mm -hmm. um, meanwhile, that's just, yeah, and meanwhile, the CFA, like you could, th these these charges are just stacked on top of each other right. often, and you often see a case where it's not, you rarely see a case where it's one CFA allegation that's often multiple stacked on top of each other because because mm -hmm. as and the punishments run um, consecutively not mm -hmm. concurrently mm -hmm. and so that's why Aaron was facing 35 years that's why um, Matthew Keyes who was a journalist who was convicted under the CFA um, early, last year he was facing 25 years he only got two um, I mean part of the problem with these severe sentences is that Prosecutors often say, well, we're not actually going to give him that many, but they have this great leverage for plea deals right. and trying to make examples out of people in these cases. Um, a, a pretty famous case was a case involving uh, U.S. versus Drew, involving a mother who had created a fake um, MySpace profile in violation of MySpace, MySpace's terms of service, mm -hmm. um, and they, she got and it was used in like an online bullying context and resulting in a child actually committing suicide, but the government wanted to make her the face of online bullying right. and then went after her with a CFAA violation. Not right. not an online bullying violation, um, but a CFAA violation because mm -hmm. that's the, under the uh, theory that the CF, uh, terms of service violation constituted um, a violation of the CFA. And right. And the, the jury actually convicted her, but the court threw it out right. and said that that was an unconstitutional interpretation of the law. Right. So, so would an online bullying statute, that would have been based on presumably state law? Because there's no federal online bullying statute. Presumably. I don't know at that time what the, um, yeah, no, there, there's, there's, a, there's various state laws. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't, that was in California, and mm -hmm. I don't know okay. what the law would have been right. in California at that time. A but, similar thing happened but in yeah. San Antonio a few maybe less than a year ago, and the prosecutor said that they just didn't have anything to charge 
oh, the okay. alleged party, that, yeah. you know, the accused, I guess, of. Um, well, and yeah, and I think, I so think sure that that's probably the case, too, and I think right. that also, um, it's not always going to be the severe criminal punishment mm -hmm. that, that is able to make a huge example out of people. Right. Um, and or I, should it be necessary? Yeah, like, and like, I, terrible yeah. Thing, all, you know, obviously these are terrible situations, Yeah. the question is, do we want to use this particular statute to go after these people? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And also, the, the law is so vague, and the mm -hmm. punishments are so high. So a law that covers even really minor behavior, but mm -hmm. also but has these giant punishments, like, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't right. fit up, and right. it doesn't fit with how we use computers today. So, Absolutely. so yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been great. Uh, if I could ask you just one more question, um, if you could please give us your definition of technology law. I feel like technology law, I guess that's kind of like the question we asked the first day in internet law. <laughs> I just, I don't know. I think technology law can mean so many things. I think it's beyond internet law, of course, because it's talking about all different things. And it's been going on for a long time. Like, mm -hmm. technology is more technological now, but mm -hmm. it's been around for a while. So I don't know. Anything that's applying the new tool, like applying the law to the new tools that we're developing for our society. So, I don't know. Yeah, perfect. All right, well, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Ah, <laughs> uh, indeed. Privacy and crime online is clearly tricky business, and there is a lot more gray area here than I think any of us have expected. Thanks to Jamie Williams for stopping by and helping us sort through all of that. And thanks, as always, to our sponsors, the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology and the Berkeley Technology Law Journal. And thanks, of course, to you, the listener, for tuning in. Until next time.